The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I do want to read one verse from chapter 7 in Leviticus, and this is verse number 11 which says, And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. Our subject is the peace offering, and this is the third of the sweet savor offerings. You remember, as I've said many times, and will say before we're finished with the series, that sweet savor offerings are about the perfection of Christ's life. They're not about his offering for sin. This is the aspect of Christ satisfying God through his perfectly obedient life and being surrendered completely to the Father's will. The peace offering is about communion with God. It's about fellowship with him. It's about contentment with God. Because in everything, he satisfies every need of a longing soul. And so if we could just add one word that describes the sacrifice, I think that I would choose the word satisfaction. That God is satisfied. For Christ, and we are satisfied in Christ. And not satisfaction, again, in the sense of paying a penalty for sin, but mutual satisfaction between God and us in the person of Christ, in his perfect character. And whenever God is at the center of something, he's satisfied. And everyone that comes into communion with him is satisfied as well. And last week's message, I I said, we're just going to have a talk. And... uh, and we did. I, I said it was more than a con- of a conversation than it was a sermon. I hope that was okay with you for me to do that. And uh, the talk was just to get us thinking in the right direction of what it feels like and what it means to have God as the all-consuming focus of our lives. And so I tried to express the importance of finding contentment in Christ so that we want nothing but Him, nothing more than Him. And there is nothing that we can have that is more than Him. And this is actually what Christians are made for. We are made for Christ. And since we receive life, health, provision, and all good things from Him, there couldn't be anything that satisfies but Him. Solomon explained uh, that the world is vanity and vexation of spirit. We read that in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes this morning, that it never brings contentment. And so if we spend our lives more on what the world has to offer, searching for that, then our lives are wasted. And so when we stand before God, we don't want to offer him a wasted life. When he examines us at the judgment seat of Christ, it would be tragic to be able to present to him only those things that he counts as worthless. Totally nothing. So we don't want all of our works to be burned up there. Now last week I said it's just a talk. Uh, And I guess probably for the rest of this message, we're just going to say, well, this is a talk also. These are just some thoughts that I didn't get finished up with last time. So I ended the thought with the thought, if you remember from last time, that the peace offering was about sharing, that the communion of God's people is a sharing society, that we, we are a people as a church that have the same care for one another. As 1 Corinthians says, we are members of one another. The peace offering taught people to share in a way that we might not catch at first, 
unless we're very careful to examine the differences between the offerings and compare them. In the burnt offering, there were three categories of animals that could be brought for sacrifice. Uh, there were animals that were brought from the herd. That's the cattle. That's the oxen. That is the rich man's offering. He has the wherewithal, the, the wealth to be able to bring that kind of an offering. An offering of the flock, which was the sheep or the goats, that is the offering for the middle class. They can't afford as much as the rich, and so God gave them the opportunity to bring a sheep or a goat. That's the middle class. But the least expensive offering is the offering that's brought by the poor people, and that would be the birds, the, the fowls, the turtle doves, the pigeons, and so on. But conspicuously absent when we examine this peace offering is that last category. There are no birds. So what does that mean? Does this mean the poor are excluded from participating in this offering? Well, we know from the scripture that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't exclude anyone because they're rich or they're poor. So how is it then in this offering, which is the most often offering of Israel, the one they do the most, why is it there is no provision for poor people? And this is just where we saw the marvelous wisdom of God shine through as God speaks in another diverse way. That, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but I'll put it in here as well, that in the seventh chapter, uh, going on reading there, there's a, there's a time limit that was placed on the uh, eating of the sacrifice. It had to be done rather quickly. And you can imagine with all of the animals that are brought from all the families in Israel, there are many, many of these animals. There's a lot of food there. And if it was a Thanksgiving offering, they were supposed to eat all of that in one day. If it's a vow, then they were allowed two days to eat it. And then after that, they, they had to burn all of it up. They, they couldn't keep it. There are no leftovers in this offering. And so there are many people who believe that the encouragement uh, to eat the offering quickly was that they couldn't get rid of all the food. And so they would have to invite the poor people in to, to share in that offering with them. So this was to teach the, 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 the children of Israel to invite people to come. It's an act of love and charity for those that are poor. And so by doing that, we have nobody left out. We have the rich people. We have the middle class people. We have the poor people. So God taught his people that they were to help the poor. And we don't find that to be anything strange about Christ because he spent a great deal of his ministry among poor people. And then you remember that, that God also had other ways of, of uh, taking care of the poor, that the Israelites weren't allowed to glean the corners of their field. They had to leave the corners standing. They weren't allowed to go back over and pick over the trees again, the fruit trees again after the first picking, but everything that's left is to be left for the poor people. So they're brought in to finish the gleaning, and so you have a provision for the poor in the harvest. That teaches us not to neglect the poor. That when we go out with the gospel of Christ, we don't stay in the rich neighborhoods, the well-to-do neighborhoods, but we go out and we give everybody the gospel of Christ. That there are some people, others considered to be undesirables. They don't want to have anything to do with them. Too far beneath the social status. But we see people, and we should see people, all of them is made in the image of God. And so his love is to be shared with everyone. I remember when I was younger that uh, our church in Kentucky was involved in the bus ministry. We had a, we had a really uh, large presence in the bus ministry in our, in, our, in our town. And we had a particular lady who was just really tireless on her bus route. And she happened to work among the poor inner city of Lexington, where I was from. And she had so many children that 
uh, one bus was not enough for her, but she had to have two 66 passenger buses to bring in all the, the poor children that, that uh, she would bring. So she'd come on Sunday mornings, these buses would be packed, there's kids hanging out the windows, and, and uh, today, you know, the arrest is for doing such a thing. But they were just packed with all of these kids, and many of these were kids that were just shoved on the buses by their parents to get rid of them. Didn't want them around the house. This is an opportunity for them to get rid of the kids on a Sunday. So they just push them on the bus. They come to church with tattered clothes, holes in their shoes, some of them with not any shoes at all. And I remember there was one, one little girl that I had on my bus route that she was crippled because uh, when she was really little, she had fallen and broken both of her ankles. But her mother didn't care to take her to the doctor to get the ankle set and to fix those, so she was crippled. And her mother would, would take her and just, uh, she would go to work, and she would shove this little girl into a room with a hardwood floor and a blanket and lock the door, and then come home at night and let her out of the room. And that was her life. And so there were many of these kids that the only love that they ever saw was when somebody from the church brought them to hear about the gospel of Christ. And that's what you get with the church. Uh, you know, sometimes it was complained by, by folks, well, all we are is a babysitting service. We're just a babysitting service because parents just shove their kids on that bus to get them out of the house. But you know something? That's okay. It's okay if we do that. Uh, bring them in to hear about the gospel of Christ. But this is what the early church was taught. They were taught to take care of the poor. We see in the book of Acts that people sold their property to accumulate money for the needy in the church. And then when Paul started in uh, started churches in other areas, that it was often, I mean, he preached to those, those, those people in those churches, and he would take up offerings for the poor people that were in the church at Jerusalem. And often the people that he collected money from were the poor people. And so it was poor, helping the poor. And the Word of God just says they gave so much, it was there was no way that they could have given this much, unless God is behind that, of course. But we really don't see that, that kind of giving any longer in churches, or not much of it. We're, we're too much in love with our houses, our cars, and our vacations to help anybody. But this is what the peace offering in Israel is all about. It's to teach people not to be selfish. It's really the epitome of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's also interesting as we look at this sacrifice to see how it was divided, who, who got which parts of the animals that were brought. And the last time we saw that this is the only offering that Israel brought where everybody got a part of it. Everybody shared in this. God got his part. The priest got his part. The priest family got their part, and then all of the people shared it in as well. But God was very, very specific about this. Who can get which part? God received the entrails and the fat. That represents the most vital part of the animal. It corresponds to the most necessary part of communion with Christ. He's the center of all things. He's the basis of communion. So God got that best part. And then the priests were, were given the the shoulders and the breast, and then the rest of the animal went to the people. The shoulders represent strength. The breast speaks of love and affection that God has for his people. And just sitting there, I suppose that you can make the connections in your mind why shoulders represent strength and why the breast represents love. If you work out, 
then you know about shoulders and getting your shoulders strong. And if you've ever been in love, you know what it means to have that beating in your breast, and that's what that stands for. Then you might also uh, note that although the people got apart, that not nobody got anything until it had first gone through the fires of the altar. And that teaches that we don't have any part with God unless we come through Christ. The altar is a type of the cross, and, and none of us reaches God except through the fiery trials of the cross. And so this is a very vitally important part in all of the offerings, regardless of the type of offering it is, it, it's in Christ. It, it's Christ that is standing in for us. Everything in the offerings is about Christ in our place. And on that basis, God is satisfied. And so if it is a, a burnt offering, then it is for us. If it's a sin offering, it is for us. If there's judgment that's symbolized by going through a fire, then that is Christ doing it for us. And so when God accepted what Christ did, this whole thing is for us. And, and these offerings would be incomprehensible except we understand that everything that Christ did was for us. And this is going to be important in just a minute. So remember, we are accepted because of what Christ did for us. And let me say that in another way, that when God is satisfied with Christ for us, that means that God is satisfied with us. Now think how profound were Christ's words on the cross when he cried out in that last breath. He said, it is finished. Everything that God required in the sacrifice was done. Every sacrifice for 4,000 years up to that point found its fulfillment. There was nothing left for us to be accepted with God. And this, this must point to the sacrifice as being particular in nature. If God is satisfied with Christ for us, then everyone for whom that sacrifice is made must be redeemed. They must be brought to God. They must be brought into fellowship and communion with Him. Anything less would devalue the worth of the sacrifice. So if they're not redeemed, if anyone is not redeemed that God intended to redeem, and if any that Christ died for are in hell, then the sacrifice is only partially good. It's not quite good enough to do everything that was intended. So there's nobody in hell that could have had a sacrifice made for him. I mean, that thought just utterly shatters the typology of this offering. He can't go to hell. He can't be separated from communion with God if there's a sacrifice that was made that satisfied God for him. And so this type in the Old Testament does not have an antitype in the New Testament unless that distinction holds. So we think about this. Why should God be particular with all the instructions for the sacrifice, but not be particular in the application of its type? Would we say that God is not particular in the most important aspect of the sacrifice, and that would be the salvation of the soul? So how is it that the most important part fails when God is so meticulous about all of the attendant details? Now, if we look in chapter 7, I alluded to this a minute ago. If you just wanted to uh, turn over there and look at the chapter for a minute. Again, I'm not going to read there. But you'll see that there are small details that have to be followed. In verses uh, 12 through 21, there are distinctions that are made. God wants to, God points this out. Or it's pointed, is this an a offering for a thanksgiving? Is this an offering for a vow? And depending on which it is, that, that determines how much time is allotted to eat the offering. And it goes on. Did anybody touch something that was unclean? 
oh, well, if you do that, then you can't touch the sacrifice because then you'll have to burn it up and get rid of it because it's been polluted. Then it says there's leavened bread, there's unleavened bread. And each of those represents a, a different aspect of worship. And you look at that and you think, is God not particular? Is God, does God care about how this is done? Does he work out minute details in, the, in getting across distinct lessons in these types? Well, I wouldn't be one who would um, accuse God with folly that he is so consumed with all fine details that he forgets to make sure that the sacrifice matches the big picture purpose. And that is, is he satisfied or is he not? Then how can an offering be made that satisfies God for the one who offers, and yet that person would go to hell? That doesn't make any sense. And so if God, if God is satisfied in Christ for us, then how can some go to hell for whom this offering is made? Now you see, the teaching of many Baptists is that, and others is that God is not satisfied until the sinner adds something. And the addition the sinner makes is faith. He accepts that the sacrifice was made for him. Well, when you look at it that way, that stipulation changes the value and the effect of the sacrifice. And as I've said this before, faith is not the missing ingredient in the atonement. Faith does not activate the atonement. God is satisfied with Christ for us. And those who come to Christ in faith come because there is a sacrifice that's been made for them. Nobody else comes. Nobody else wants to come. And nobody else ever will come. So God designed the means for them to come. That's the gospel of Christ. And then we'll come to this as well. Isaiah chapter 53 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And so you wonder, how can Christ be satisfied if he died for people that end up in hell? You see, doctrinally, you only have two alternatives. Either Christ did not do enough, and there is more that's needed, in which case the extra ingredient is supplied by a, by a fallen, depraved sinner, or your other, your other option is universal salvation. Well, I try to be very careful about the terminology I use because they were careful in the Old Testament about every part of the sacrifice. So I think that we need to be careful when we represent things that God did, especially in the most important point of the sacrifice, which is our salvation. So a change in our theology will, will change the way we speak and the way we convey the meaning of what we believe. Now, I want you to listen to this wording in, in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In 1805, Andrew Fuller published a, a notable work that's entitled The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And Fuller emphasized in that treatise that it's the duty of all to believe the gospel and it's the duty of us to preach the gospel to all people everywhere. At that time, there was an argument about this because there were some who denied that we should make a free offer of the gospel to every person. And so what they preferred to do is just sit in their churches, not do anything, not preach, and then God would save whom he will. So Fuller's work was a push for evangelism and he, along with uh, William Carey, 
were pioneers of the modern missions movement, and both of them were very firmly committed to the doctrines of grace. And when Fuller said acceptance, the gospel worthy of all acceptation, when he talked about acceptance, he knew what that meant. And he never imagined that acceptance in any way would be a part of man's salvation. But now that meaning has all been changed around. It's been twisted by Arminianism among Baptists. And you ought not to let Baptists who say, oh, we are Biblicists or we are traditionalists, say that they are not Arminian. No, they are Arminian. Now, maybe I'm too much of a stickler here, but uh, I rarely use this phrase. You, you can probably count on one hand you've ever heard me say this. Have you accepted Christ? Or will you accept Christ? I hardly ever use that terminology. You see, acceptance of Him sounds like we do something. That is, we, we evaluate Christ. And then once we see who he is, we put our approval on what Christ did. But you know, there's never a verse in the Bible that says that anyone was told to accept Christ. There is no one in the Bible who said, I accepted Christ. But we do read this. We do read of receiving Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received. And wherein ye stand. Galatians 1.9. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1.12. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it by the revelation of Jesus Christ, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ, rather. Colossians 2.6. As ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And I can go on. It's always received. And receiving doesn't start with you. Receiving puts the focus on what God did, whereas accept puts the emphasis on what you do. And so when I preach, I say, receive Christ. You know why? Because the work of Christ was accepted by the Father, not by us. It's not by us, it's accepted by the Father, and we receive the benefit of what Christ did. Now look again at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Who maketh thee to differ from another? And when you receive Christ, it's because God initiated an action. And you're not going to receive Christ until God works by effectually calling. Now, accept sounds too much like I've made the evaluation and that I'm solely in control of what happens to my soul. Now, maybe that difference is too subtle for you. And uh, I'm just kind of funny about these things because details seem to be important to me. But the intricacies, if you wonder why, why, do, why do I say these things, because the intricacies of these sacrifices teach me this. And I'll tell you, I'm not going to fall out with anybody who doesn't make that distinction. I will, though, if they teach decisional regeneration, which most of those birds do. And there you go. I got birds in the sacrifice after all. But 
I believe that, that God is particular about this, and so we ought to be particular. And, and people will say, well, you know, yes, God is particular. Baptists are just nitpicky, and that's okay with me. Because if we can maintain the integrity of our doctrine by the, by the way that we speak, we can do that better by the way that we speak, then we should do it. So I'll leave that point for now, but uh, we're not through with those kinds of observations. Uh, the other sacrifice, especially when we get into sin offering, will bring up more important topics like the atonement. Now the change, though, in theological opinions in Baptists in the past 50 years has weakened the church in other areas as well. If Baptists do not maintain correct soteriological positions, and for those of you, well, what's that word mean? That just means doctrine of salvation. If they don't maintain correct soteriological positions, which are the most important things that we teach, then there's going to be a breakdown in other areas as well. And I think that we can relate that to the problems that we see in modern churches in other ways, because there's always a temptation to try to help God in what he wants to do. And whenever you make faith the actuator of the atonement, that says, in effect, God needs help. God didn't do quite enough. Now, th this shows up in the constant themes in sermons about fulfillment, about reaching our full potential in, in efforts of self-realization, self-activation, self-esteem, positive self-image. On it goes with all these goals, these other things that are supposed to make life more fulfilling. So all of those ways, the problem with all of that is they overlook the peace offering. That the only way to be content is because of the work of Christ, and we deny all self-confidence by putting all confidence in Him. And that happens to be the opposite of what 90% of churches teach. And so they desperately need to learn about Old Testament sacrifices, and this is why I teach it to you, because those are people that give no evidence that they understand what was going on in the Old Testament. Why all of these particular things about these sacrifices? A few weeks ago, I read an article about Joseph Prince. Anybody ever, any of you know about who Joseph Prince is? Uh, one or two, three maybe of you. I don't know, the, most of you haven't heard of him, but he's a very popular prosperity preacher, and he is known, I mean, this is, this is kind of like his, his uh, theme, is he is a grace preacher. And he made a very peculiar comment about the Old Testament law. He said, the Old Testament law, the law is about you, but grace is all about Christ. And in that statement, he showed he understood nothing about Old Testament sacrifices or the law. Because in these sacrifices... We see, you know, because I've taught it to you, that this, these Old Testament sacrifices focus on Christ. That's what it's all about. The law is about Christ, not about you. And it's only about you as receiving a, a benefit from Christ's work. Well, I want to step through this offering a little bit to start to clarify the different parts that are in the text. We're, we're still a ways away from the outline, and, and uh, I find it easier at this point just to keep on talking to you. And so I'm just going to fill in some background information and uh, give you some information to think about. And then when we get to that outline, you'll remember this background, hopefully, and those things will make more sense. So here we have the, the third offering. And it's very significant about the proper order that's maintained in these offerings. The burnt offering is made first, then the grain offering, and then the peace offering. But I want you to hold on to that information for just a few minutes because... 
There are also non-sweet savor offerings. And actually, the non-sweet savor offerings come before these. And when we get to those, those last two, the sin offering and the trespass offering, the non-sweet savor, I'm going to spend a good deal of time explaining to you why those two offerings must come before these offerings. But in the order of sweet savor offerings, first you do have the burnt, then you have the grain, and then you have the peace offering. So the first two offerings are made, they're burned on the altar, and then the, then the offerer brings this animal that is the peace offering. And so in chapter 3, verse number 2, you see where he, he, the, the offerer lays his hand on the head of the animal and he killed it. Then the priest took the blood, he sprinkled it on and around the altar, and then he began to cut up the animal and divide it into its parts. Now I'll mention this as we just kind of fly by here, that the blood was drained because they were not to eat an animal that had any blood in it. The life is in the blood, so they drained all of the blood out, and they sprinkled it, and that's to show that the life is gone. And that's a prohibition that goes back to the time in the days after the flood, when God uh, then, for the first time, allowed people to eat meat, but he says you can't eat it with blood. So we go into the New Testament, and there we find that in order to promote unity in the New Testament church between Jews and Gentiles, in order to not to be an offense to the Jews, James said, and James is the senior pastor, the Lord's brother, the senior pastor of, we would call him, of the Jerusalem church, and he said, we need to make this restriction, we need to tell the Gentiles to do this, not to eat things that are strangled. And the reason is because the blood was still in the animal. So after the blood is drained and the blood is sprinkled, the priests began to cut the animal up, and then the parts are set aside as to who receives each part. Now, let's, let's kind of go back through that again. God's part is mostly the fat, and that's put on top of the burnt offering and on the grain offering that's already on the altar. So the priest then took the breast and the, and the right shoulder for himself and for his children, and the rest of the, the animal is for the people. And when that offering was, was put on the altar, the burning of the sweet savor was to show that, that God consumed it. The burning up shows that God consumed it and he was satisfied. Then the priest, he's satisfied with the portion that he received. The people were satisfied with their portion. And so what we have in the peace offering is satisfaction everywhere, all around. And the picture is that everyone walks away pleased, they're gratified, they're full, and they are content with the offering. And so placing this offering on top of the others was symbolic that peacefulness and contentment is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we note in this, in this offering that Christ is seen symbolically in every person that's represented. So he is, Christ is God in the offering. Christ is the one who is offered, that is, he is the sacrifice. And then he is the priest. Christ is also our priest who stands as the mediator between man and God at the altar. And then he's also the head of his people, the people in general. And they're satisfied by the intercession that's made by Christ at the altar. So everything we see here stands upon Christ. And if we separate any of this away from Christ, and we, when we begin to center on self, then the picture is, is ruined that Christ alone satisfies so whenever you have somebody who's preaching to you that self is to be the focus of what we do, then we end up being undernourished. We leave 
hungry. We end craving for more because self will never satisfy. Jesus said, take of me and you'll never hunger or thirst again. So the principle is complete satisfaction in him. Now, this is expressed in the New Testament in 1 John 3, verses 16 to 24. So I want you to take your Bibles and go to that scripture. And we're going to spend just a few minutes here uh, pulling out the references in the New Testament that, that correspond to this offering. And you won't see this unless you study the Old Testament, unless you know that John has something particular in mind as he writes this scripture. And he has in mind what takes place in the peace offering. So we're reminded again that God gave these Old Testament sacrifices to tie into a New Testament teaching when Christ appeared. So what this does is steer us away from self, which is the great mistake of the modern church. They want the gospel to be self-centered. Now let's see what John says about it. 1 John 3.16 Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things." Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. He that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Now we go back up to verse number 16. He says, Hereby perceive we the love of God. So how do we perceive it? How do we know the love of God? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what Christ did. What Christ did with his life. Now what he's referring to here is sweet savor. He's talking about the life of Christ. That's what a sweet savor offering is. We observe his life. So what did he do with his life? Well, he lived it for us and he sacrificed it for us. And so you might think, as John writes this, well, the only thing that he has in mind is the death of the cross. But actually what John has in mind here is Christ's daily life that was given in the service of others. And we see this in the next phrase, as John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And he's not talking there about physically giving up our lives to die for each other, giving up physical life, which we might be called on to do, but that's not his focus. He means giving up our lives, sacrificing our lives in service to one another, as Christ did. Then verses 17 to 19 are practical examples of how that's done, which, when it's done, produces in us the assurance that we are God's people, that Christians are selfless, not selfish. And if we're otherwise, then we don't have the character of Christ. And, he says, then there's no proof that you belong to him. Verse number 21 is a little bit confusing, and I'm not going to go into that. Uh, if you want to know more about verse number 21, then take some time to look that up on, the, on our sermons on 1 John from a, a, a while ago. But there basically, it, it's talking about uh, encouragement 
and to repent of our self-centeredness in order to have internal peace with God. Then verse number 22 says that we know that repentance has the desired effect because God affirms that by answering our prayers. And then verses 23 to 24 provide assurance that if we love our brother, what? We are at peace with God, that his spirit lives in us. Now the opposite of all of that is trying to find satisfaction in everything else but Christ. And this is what Jesus taught in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to go to that. I'm not going to read that for sake of time. But I want to remind you that the prodigal, as you know, gathered up all of his inheritance, received that from his father. He left his father's house and then went to find his contentment in the world. And so he spent this brief period of time in the world until he used up all of his resources and then there was a famine that came, and all that did was to deepen his helplessness. And so finally, he, he, he found there's no sustenance for him, but to get a job working in a, with a pig farmer, eating the food that the pigs ate. And what that shows us is the person who tries to seek satisfaction in the wrong way. That he's not going to find it, but all that he does is drive himself deeper into despair. So the prodigal realized the mistake. He returned to his father because the father's house is the place of contentment. And then we can't miss this, that the symbolism of the father was, was pleased with his son coming back was that he killed the fatted calf. And that's the picture, that the, the symbol that the father is pleased the son has returned. And now again we have peace and we have contentment in our family again. And so the son is accepted by the Father. Now what this, this, this just builds background information for our outline. And, and we are, we, we could begin that, but I don't think that we will. We'll save that. It's getting a little bit late, so I'm not going to start on it. So we save it for next time, but keep this information in your mind as we get ready for, to, to go next week on it. We just thank the Lord for the pictures of Christ that are found in the Old Testament. And I hope that you've learned something in two weeks of me just kind of talking to you about it and just kind of laying out the picture of what this is about, this total contentment in Christ. As I said this morning, the, the sermons, uh, the, the scripture reading rather in Ecclesiastes 2 just worked beautifully into this. The teaching on covetousness and so on, it works in just perfectly with the peace offering. Our contentment must be in Christ. So I'm just talking to you. But I'm done talking to you. So next week I'm going to sermonize you. So next week we'll get into the, we'll get into the outline and, and learn more about the peace offering. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time spent together in your word. Lord, um, how we need to learn this. And the basis of our theological positions are found in places like this. Never are we going to find the Word of God contradicting itself. What's true in the Old Testament will be true in the New Testament. The symbolisms of the Old Testament will give us a picture of what Christ did in the New Testament. And if those things don't match, we've got a wrong interpretation. So Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand your Word, to pull out these, these nuggets, these gems of theological truths that are found there, and help us to grow in your Word. We're not content float around on the surface just talking about things that um, kindergartners know. Oh, we, we want to learn the depths of your word. Help us to do that, Lord, as we study it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.